The series will essentially be asking and answering one particular question. And that question is this. Are all leadership opportunities open to both men and women on the basis of a calling, on the basis of their character, on the basis of their competency, in other words, their ability to do the job, and their gifting from Holy Spirit. Are all leadership opportunities open? So interesting, we've been looking at this topic and thinking about this topic for about six years. So a long time, a long time of thinking, a long time of researching, a lot of reading, a lot of reflecting, and a whole load of conversations, discussions, and reflecting together as a team. So I want to go right to the beginning this week and and also touch upon um, Jesus and how Jesus interacted with both men and women. And this week is more of a kind of looking at it from 20,000 feet, really big perspective, lots of themes, lots of ideas. Then next week, really dialing in and going into Genesis 1 and 2 in a lot more detail and looking at the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and what that did to the relationship and the dynamic. And then in week 3, Rochelle's going to talk about the New Testament and what the New Testament saw breaking out and the trajectory of what came out of the New Testament. And then on Sunday, the 1st of December, there's going to be an opportunity for Q&A and that'd be great if you've got questions that come up during the series. You've got, we've got a basket here, a nice basket and some paper and pens. And you can write whatever questions you've got or whatever reflections you've got. And we'll do our best on Sunday the 1st of December to, as a team, answer those things and, uh, and hopefully bring uh, clarity. So right at the beginning, God created men and woman. He created man and woman. And it's interesting that right at the beginning, he had a world-changing, calling, commission, mandate, purpose for men and women. That he had a great uh, role for them together and a huge significance for them together. And it says in 1 Genesis, uh, verse 26, and it says, God said, let us Make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And it says in verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth. And then here's an aspect of the commission as well. Together subdue it. Together rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So God gave both man and both women this calling to subdue, to rule, to lead and to influence the earth. He gave that commission 
to both of them together. And that mandate, in a sense, was extend Eden. Extend Eden, extend Eden, extend this place that's called pleasure, Eden, extend that and subdue and extend that and extend that and extend that. And that commission was given to them in partnership together. And there's a sense right at the beginning that in order to subdue, in order to rule, in order to expand, in order to do what God had in mind for humanity to do, required both man and woman together. And there's a sense of what we're going to see later on breaking out into the New Testament. We see that through Christ, there's a partnership between men and women to bring the mandate of the gospel going to the ends of the world, the great commission being fulfilled by men and women in partnership. And so this role together wasn't just about together being fruitful or together multiplying. It wasn't just a commission to a man and woman or a husband and wife and say, right, you're going to have children and you're going to be fruitful and you're going to multiply numerically. No, it was together you're going to rule, together you're going to subdue, together you're going to extend the boundaries of Eden. There's something about together that's right in the beginning of creation. That God had an original intention for the partnership between the genders, between men and women. And then something happens in Genesis 3 and Eve is deceived. Adam is alongside her. Apparently in the Hebrew it says elbow to elbow, shoulder to shoulder. They both got deceived. And the, the beginning of Genesis is really telling you that the enemy, the serpent, is incredibly crafty, incredibly deceitful, and cre- incredibly able to distort and pervert and tempt. And it says that because they did the one thing that God had said not to do, it says that part of that curse in Genesis 3 and verse 16, it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. It says he will rule over you. That in other words... Genesis 1 and 2, as we'll look at in more detail, did not, Genesis 1 and 2 did not establish hierarchy. The hierarchy and one person being the boss and one person lording it over was actually a consequence of sin coming in. That sin didn't distort or just slightly change a hierarchical relationship sin actually totally transformed and changed and distorted and perverted the original intention, which was not somebody ruling over and somebody kind of subserviently following. It distorted it and spoilt it and ruined it. That actually Jesus coming, the cross, dealt with the curse of a 
wrong type of relationship and a wrong type of ungodly authority. So sin introduced a struggle and sin introduced a battle of wills between men and women. And we can see that into the New Testament that we'll look at in later weeks is where you find places like Ephesus and where you find a kind of um, a female ungodly type of authority that's harsh and controlling. And when Paul then says, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man, he uses a very specific type of word about authority there, which is a kind of harsh, domineering, controlling kind of authority. And Paul says, no, that's not the kind of authority that I want to see in the church. And the root of those kind of distortions and perversions of authority come into come from and because of sin. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. He will have authority over you. But Jesus paid a price to restore original intention. That Jesus paid a price to restore the original intention of God in the way people would relate. And we're doing a whistle-stop tour over loads of verses here, and these will get unpacked in more detail later on. But in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says this, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, There's neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. So the gospel comes in and says, hey, historically there's been all these power relationships. There's power relationships between being a Jew and having the inheritance and the heritage of the prophets and the the promises in the church. And there's been these power relationships between people who are free and people who are slaves. And there's been these power struggles, these wrestles between the sexes, between the men and the women. And now Paul is saying, in Christ, everyone, everyone from every tribe, every nation, from every heritage, whether you're a slave or whether you're free, whether you're a man or whether you're a woman, now the gospel is equally advantaging, uh, being an equal advantage for everyone, And everyone is equally disadvantaged in Christ. So if we say in society, if you were a slave owner, you had a huge advantage over being a slave. And now Paul is saying, in the church, that which was an advantage to you is now your disadvantage in a sense, because you're now to serve everyone. And a slave, though you felt disadvantaged and less than everyone, in Christ we're all one, you now have a huge advantage. So God in Christ has pulled down dividing walls of social, economical, gender-based advantages and disadvantages. That's an incredible thing. So that ethnicity, status, money gender no longer ultimately established 
value and identity, but Christ does. So someone from an incredibly poor background and someone from an incredibly rich background are suddenly equal in Christ. So the Bible and what Christ introduced is incredibly revolutionary. Scandalous introduction of things. And so we can see the beginnings in the New Testament of the reality of these things, of what Christ is restoring, beginning to break out amongst people. So, Jesus, when Jesus taught Mary, do you remember Mary and Martha? Martha's busy making sandwiches. Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teaching. That is revolutionary. Because when somebody sat at the feet of a rabbi to be taught and to listen, the expectation was that that person who was listening will do the things that the rabbi is talking about. That she's going to heal the sick, raise the dead, instruct the nations and remind them everything that Jesus has said. Do you remember Jesus goes to a well at midday and he's thirsty? And he talks to a woman. That's scandalous. She's a Samaritan and she's a woman and it's midday and he should not be speaking to a woman on his own. And particularly a woman who's actually gone through some really hard times. Actually, she had been divorced six times. She'd gone through a lot of stuff. And she was shamed by her group. But then Jesus makes this amazing disclosure to this woman that he is the Messiah. It's the clearest, most powerful disclosure of who he really is. And it comes to a person who the society says you can't speak to, who's actually in shame. And then she goes back and tells everybody about this person who knew everything about me. Becomes like an evangelist to the Samaritans. Remember the resurrection. Who are the first witnesses of the resurrection? These, Mary, these women are the first witnesses to the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. He gives them incredible dignity and status and they can't, they wouldn't even be admissible as people to give a testimony in court of what they had seen because they were women. But Jesus elevates them and makes them witnesses of the resurrection. Romans 16, the apostle Paul talks about a a woman called Junia, a fellow, he calls her a fellow apostle. There's a woman called Phoebe, who's a deacon. Her responsibility was to take the book of Romans to the Romans. And it wasn't just a question of delivering a letter. If there were any questions about the content of the book of Romans, 
he is entrusting her to be able to give an explanation of what's in the book. Lydia, who led a house church, we read about a woman called Priscilla, who, were taught, who taught the great teacher Apollos the way more clearly. And right at the beginning in Pentecost, we see Peter referring back to the promise of Joel about who the Holy Spirit would fall upon. So in Acts chapter 2, Holy Spirit's just come and... Peter says about Pentecost, the coming of Holy Spirit, he says, this is what the promise of Joel was speaking about. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will, oh no, your young men will, will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Again, the shock isn't that God in the New Deal is bringing prophetic revelation. The whole Old Testament he's been giving prophetic revelation. There's been prophets and people bringing revelation from God. The shock is who's getting to do the revelation. Your sons and your daughters. If it had just said your sons, that would have been a normal, progressing, no shock there. But suddenly it's a revelation. No, in Christ it's going to be your sons and your daughters who get to prophesy. And so, as a local church, we have got an incredible calling upon us. You know, people in our day are craving, I want to know why I'm on the planet, I want to know that I'm significant, I want to know that I've got meaning, I want to know I'm here for a reason, there's something bigger than me. Local church is an amazing place to have a revelation that your life on the planet absolutely matters. You're alive now, in this country, at this time, because of God's wisdom, sovereignty. You're alive now because you're alive for an incredible calling. Our lives are to be full of life and meaning and significance. The church holds the answers to the deepest issues in the human heart because of who Jesus is in us. It's an incredible privilege and an incredible opportunity. And so in order to fulfill this mission, one of the things we've gone after again and again and again is that for men and women to know their identity in Christ to know who they are, to know their royalty, to know they're a royal priesthood, to know they can have access to God, to know that the privilege of the believer is to know the unconditional kindness and acceptance of the good, good Father, to know intimacy with God, connection with God, and out of identity to have a huge impact everywhere they go by just being themselves. And we've got after that for nine years. And we're still going to go after that because fundamentally we need to know who we are. We need to know our identity. We also need to know the fundamental thing of men and women absolutely need one another. That the partnership that God established in 
creation, the partnership that he's redeeming through the finished work of Christ, that the church needs men and women to be who God has made them to be, so that the church can serve and minister to itself and effectively serve and minister to the world around them. It says in the Bible in chapter 2, it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. It's the only time God says it wasn't good. Everything was good. Everything was good until he says, actually, it was not good for Adam to be alone. And this series is looking at this statement. It's actually not good for church leadership teams to be without women. It's actually not good for men to be alone. There's a partnership that when it gets redeemed, when it comes into the reality of new covenant, when it comes into the reality of the implications of the new birth, that men and women together get to restore the ruined cities, that men and women together get to bring hope to the nation, that men and women together get to serve the body, to equip the body, to train the body so the body can become strengthened to do all that the body needs to do. That men and women together bringing good news to the world around them. So what's driving this? I don't think what's driving this is feminism. What's driving this isn't some kind of politically correct equality idea. What's driving this is not particular people or particular personalities. What's driving this, at the heart of what's driving this, believe it's a Holy Spirit thing. It's a Holy Spirit thing that's driving this. And it's that question, is Holy Spirit here free? Is the Holy Spirit here, in that sense, at liberty to freely give gifts and authority to both men and women? It's a Holy Spirit thing. Can he do that? It's an interesting thing. Can people restrict God? Well, you could say uh, it's both and. It's God is sovereign. And God partners with people. And I think through the six years of reading and thinking and researching and together having conversations, it boils down to is Holy Spirit free to give people, men and women, the gifts that he wants to give them. So Romans 12.8 talks about a whole load of gifts. Romans 12 and verse 8. Or, sorry, verse 3, 12, 3. For the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with, in accordance with the faith that has been distributed to each of you. For just as, 
for just as each of us has one body with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. We all have different gifts, according to what? According to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The conviction then is this, is that Holy Spirit is free to give gifts to both men and both to women. Holy Spirit is free to give measures of trust and measures of faith. He's free to give that to both men and women and that both men and women are then free to serve according to the measure of grace. Grace is something that is given, it's a gift, it's not earned, it's not deserved. And faith. And I do think people can grow in these things as well. I don't think that any of us have got this fixed measure of faith or this fixed measure of gifting or grace. We can actually grow and cultivate our gifting, our calling, our faith, our measure through faithfulness. And so from that is that both men and women equally released on the basis of, first of all, they're called of God. There's a calling from God that God has called that there's a capacity and a character that they have. Character is our ability to tell ourselves what to do, our capacity to lead ourselves, our capacity to say yes and mean yes and no and mean no, our consistency, our competency. Competency is something that is both a gift and it's something that can be increased and developed through faithfulness and our gifting. And so, out of that, and you'll see it throughout the series then, is this. So if a man or a woman has a clear calling, character, competency, and gifting, if a man or woman has a measure of faith, and a measure of anointing, and a, and a measure of gifting that's clearly come from Holy Spirit. This series is exploring that whether it's a man or a woman who has those things that they can be and should be recognised as a leader, as an overseer, whether you call it to direct the affairs of the church or whether you call it eldering. That, that ability, that gifting and that favour should be equally publicly celebrated and recognised whether that gifting is upon a man or whether that gifting is upon a woman. It's interesting that sometimes the church, and I'm not talking about our church, but has danced around this issue in, in some of the most peculiar ways. One of the ways is say in America, 
I'm not sure if this is the right statistic, but it's quite close. About 67% of missionaries are women. And so a woman can be recognized as a, as, a as a missionary. She can be prayed for, supported, and go across the, the world to lead men and women to Christ, to disciple men and women in following Christ, to bring direction and leadership to how that gets outworked to reach a nation, but they can't be recognised when they come home. Uh, so you can have places that would say, you know what, we, we cannot recognise a woman's gifting calling in, in our home, but we can recognise it if she's away from our home. And that's inconsistent. Because if creation order established, women can never lead in that way, then it's in one sense, it's inconsistent to say she can do it in Mozambique, but she can't do it in Plumstead. So I think there's something about the liberty and the freedom for men and for women, where both men and women can together unapologetically lead with passion, energy, zeal and enthusiasm for the, for the forward movement and motion of the church together and its mission in the world. So it's not a man thing, it's not a woman thing. It's a Holy Spirit thing. Because you can have a church where the whole team are all men because, because in that context, in that moment, Holy Spirit has distributed those gifts to men and women are getting trained and released and being exhorted and they're becoming too. Or you could have a, you could have a team of, it's mixed perfectly or not mixed. It's not about getting the numbers right. And then if you don't go after the anointing of the Holy Spirit that enables and gifts and equips and anoints someone for something, it weakens the church. It's got to be based on the anointing and the work of the Spirit. So it's not an equality agenda. It's a Holy Spirit one. And so to repeat that, if a man or a woman has the measure of gifting to be a leader, overseer, elder, director, if they have the ability, the gifting, the favour and the anointing, they both need to be publicly recognised, publicly celebrated, so that men and women together can unapologetically lead with passion, energy and enthusiasm. So sometimes what comes into people's mind is this. Oh, I don't want to be in a church with lots of bossy women in it. I think a bossy, domineering man is equally dangerous and, and trouble. So this is not about a hierarchy and we're building a ladder and saying, hey, everybody can come up to the top of the hierarchy now and, and bark orders over everybody. We're demolishing that. We're demolishing that because that kind of idea 
of authority over is a distortion of the original intention of Genesis 1 and 2. It came in because of sin. It came in because of the curse. That actually men and women together are are unique reflectors of the glory of God. And it's not even saying men should lead as men and women should lead as women. No, a woman who's gifted and called and anointed and appointed and has faith leads you according to the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And a man who's gifted, called, anointed and called by God leads you according to the fruit of Holy Spirit and the nature and character of God. And it's also about celebrating the beauty of the togetherness that is not everybody's exactly the same. That men and women are wonderfully different and they bring different expressions of spirituality too. And it's celebrating that. That Jesus introduced a whole different way of how authority gets outworked and how authority gets recognised. So Matthew 21 and verse 23. Jesus' authority is questioned. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? So the reason Holy Spirit gifting is absolutely overwhelmingly vital is because there are two sources of authority that can operate. There's authority that comes from human promotion, that comes from just human gifting and human wisdom and human resources and human ability. That kind of authority tends to produce not the freedom of heaven. And Jesus is saying, no, there's another source of authority That's a source of authority that's come from heaven. And that kind of authority has a very different type of fruit. It tends to increase the reality of heaven amongst you. It tends to increase the realm of the miraculous. It tends to bring more of heaven's resources into an environment. It uses very different tools to lead people. Earth's authority tends to use control and manipulation. Heaven's authority is releasing, loving, and tends to lead through influencing people towards making their own good goals and choices. And so Jesus says, there's actually a different authority that's operating with me. That's heaven's authority. And he then goes on to say, that's how the church should be run, according to heaven's gifting, heaven's authorization, and heaven's authority. You see, leadership is ultimately nothing to do with hierarchy and being the boss. It's got absolutely nothing 
to do with being over people. It's got absolutely nothing to do with having authority over people to get them to do things. Heaven's authority, heaven's leadership, heaven's gifting is actually about serving. It's sacrificial. That leadership is an activity, a function, and not a status, and not an identity, and not a position. So there is no ladder to climb. And Jesus in Matthew 20 talks about how that leadership gets exercised. In Matthew 20 and verse 20, it says this, A mother's request. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked favour of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm about, I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not mine for me to grant. These places belong to those whom the, have been prepared by my father. <laughs> when the ten heard about this, they were indignant. It's interesting that human beings, they were, uh, hierarchy, position, privilege, comparison, competition, struggle of wills, it's all there. Who are these two guys trying to get in front of us? When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, of, instead whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When Jesus says in other places like John 17, I have authority over, he has authority over humanity to give salvation, to give breakthrough. He talks about having authority over sickness. But Jesus says the way we lead, the way we're called to lead, is not to have authority over people. But authority from heaven is about gifted and called men and women who actually through serving and sacrifice and faithfulness and consistency and resilience and humility lead. That, how do you know you've got that calling? Well, it grows through sacrifice. It grows through serving. It grows through humility. It grows through laying your life down. It grows through being the least among everyone. And it grows through resilience. It grows through having an inner life that can cope with the pressures of spiritual leadership. So it's actually easy for us to kind of have an ambition for spiritual leadership. But spiritual leadership comes with a huge amount of spiritual pressure too. Huge privileges, but also huge amounts of pressure. And it's about having an internal resilience that can cope with the pressure. It's a bit like if you go to crush a can of Coke and it's got nothing in it, it's really easy to crush that can. But if it's full of Coke, it's full of Pepsi, you try and crush it, it's got resilience, it's got strength, 
it's impossible to crush it. So sometimes people say, how do I, how could I emerge as a leader? How could I become a leader? Well, the people who sacrifice the most get empowered the most. The people who serve the most always get empowered the most. That it's sacrifice, that it's faithfulness, that it's consistency. It's the capacity to say yes and mean yes and no and mean no. It's about having that inner world that's strong and robust and can cope with the pressure. It's about that humility that's actually about the good of everyone else. And so when those leadership gifts are recognised in both men and women, heaven's resources flows through that kind of government to bring the resources of heaven to a community and to bring it to a group of people. As someone once said, if you go to a nation where the government is corrupt and out for its own ends and wants to dominate the people, you could chuck millions and billions of resources to that nation and not change it because it won't flow through the government to the people. It will just be resources in their bank. It won't flow to the people to build schools and hospitals and infrastructure and water purification. It will get stuck at the point of government. But when government is sacrificial and serving and faithful and humble and consistent and and resilient, that kind of resources can flow through the hands of that government so that everyone gets empowered so that everyone becomes enabled, so that everyone becomes equipped to do great and amazing things. See, that's why I think this is so vital for both men and for women. I think the role of leadership is not to hold all the resources and all the dreams and then say, come and serve my vision, come and serve my dreams, come and make my goals come true. The goal of leadership is mostly about the cultivation of an environment where the good things of the kingdom can grow. Most of leadership is making sure that good things grow and where bad things are springing up, there's some weeding and some pulling out some rocks and to make sure that the good things can grow. It's not to be in control of all the aspirations and the dreams of the whole environment. I believe that leadership pours itself out to release the resources and the capacity of heaven so that people can do influential and amazing and great things. Son of God said, you're going to do greater things. He poured himself out for three years to the 12, the 72, the 500, the, the, the 120 who were there in the upper room so that they would go on to do greater things. I think that's the greatest mark of leadership. It's the humility to say, I am on this planet to resource or distribute heaven's resources to increase the body's life. And what we're saying is, Holy Spirit, you're so free here on the basis of of your calling, on the basis of your gifting of competency, on the basis of you giving supernatural gifts, on the basis of men and women's character, that where there's that serving, sacrifice, faithful, consistency, resilience, that inner life, that humility, that laying down the life to distribute heaven's resources, that you are so free, Holy Spirit, to distribute those kind of gifts to whoever you choose.
whether it's a man or a woman.